any event, uh, this is a shear. This is a makeup shear. <coughs> For a parsha Shavua shear that I give on Wednesday nights. Excellent idea. In the Rambad Shul in Yerushalayim. The reason that I didn't give it last night, I just give it last night at 8 o'clock, and then go to the plane which left at 1 o'clock to come to Toronto. But all day long, you know, snow in Israel is not like snow in Toronto. <laughs> in Toronto, when it snows, you say, what's well, new? But in Israel, when it snows, that's the news. And there has been nothing on the news for the last two days, except that it's going to snow in New Zealand. So, uh, so they kept telling me that I was going to miss the plane because I wouldn't get out of Yerushalayim. So I left at <laughs> so I left at seven instead of leaving at nine or ten on a normal kind of way. So I didn't give a shit. I was impressed because I get the sources. And Jeffrey Sachs sent them out, and I called my sister and I said, "How's he giving a shit Wednesday night in Israel and be here Thursday morning?" Oh, that was not the problem. The only problem was the snow. I said, <laughs> the only problem was the snow. So here I am, and uh, I didn't give it. So this is kind of a makeup shear. This is the shear that I wanted to give, but a divine act kept me from giving it. And now we're proving that we can just keep learning Torah in spite of it all. No matter what happens, that's, you know, our take on Jewish history. We just kept learning Torah. Which is not always easy to understand, but seems to be a fact. Seems to be a fact. The fact you can write Jewish history for those people who might be interested in Jewish history from uh, the Second Temple period, the period of the Mishnah, by just citing the great works written on Torah. As though that was the only thing that the Jews did. Of course, we know that that's not the case. But there are very few uh, uh, nations, perhaps none, uh, which ha- where you could describe a 2,000 year history by the books that were written about some sacred text that they were interested in. That always became kind of the, uh, uh, the thing that other people were involved in. You know, special people, certain people. But the Jews said, everybody should do it. Everybody should learn Torah. So there's another point here that I'm happy about because uh, for some reason, not for some reason, I mean, sociologically and otherwise we can understand it, but the women were largely left out of this process of Talmud Torah for the last 2,000 years. And I say largely, there were women who were very knowledgeable, very capable, very uh, um, uh, quotable, even, you know, all those years, all the 2,000 years, except that they were all, don't ever believe a teacher who says all or everything, or, you know, or don't believe anybody who says that. So having said that, I'm going to say it anyway. Right, so then you can, like, uh, I'm like in a better position because I admit it's a bad thing to say. But, but many, many of these women, these well-known women who were Torah scholars, grew up in the homes of Torah scholars. 
And even though they didn't go to school, but they were able to kind of uh, imbibe the spirit, especially if their father was a great scholar and had brothers. They would come home. In those days, uh, you didn't go far away from home to study Torah. You, you, there were always people around who could teach it. And so, unfortunately, for the last 2,000 years, more or less, women did not have an equal opportunity, an equal opportunity to be part of the Torah learning process. So that's the second reason that I'm happy, because I have an opportunity to teach women Torah, and I think that's an important thing. But more important than my teaching women Torah is women learning Torah. And even though Torah often seems to be non-rentability, rentability is a, is a pseudo-Israeli word, which means profitable. <laughs> Sometimes you learn Torah, and, and, and it's true, you don't know exactly why you're doing it. Like, why? Uh, but I, the way I look at it is that Torah has proven itself. And if you really put in the effort and you put in the time, it doesn't have to be a lot of time all at once. Well, it could be, but even if you don't have a lot of time, but you have steady time, like you devote yourself in a very steady fashion to uh, Torah study, it does really make a difference. It makes a difference. Uh, the first thing, it makes a difference how you present yourself to your children. If you want the educational system in Toronto to be better than it is, and you might want that, uh, you have to tell your children that you want them to be better than they are. And I know that this is not so well accepted today, you know, in a world where the parents like to, you know, as long as the children haven't killed anybody, robbed a bank, or traded in narcotics in the women's street, that everything's fine. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, not everything is fine. Like, you know, if you, for example, if your child will, will, uh, will uh, opt to become a, a teacher in a Hebrew school, you throw him off a building. I mean, you know, he's supposed to be a rich uh, computer programmer. He's not supposed to be a teacher. He's supposed to be rich and donate money to the poor slobs who are teachers. <laughs> anyway, so it's not all the same. Not all the same. So we'll get back to the parsha. In this parsha, parsha of era, there are makot. God brings makot on the mitzvah. Plagues, they are called in English. Uh, I don't know what makes something a plague. Like, when is it not a plague, and when does it suddenly become a plague? But plagues are bad. Plagues are bad. The first plague is dumb. I think we could all agree that dumb is, I mean, if you turn on the faucet, out comes blood, that would be a little bit distressing. <laughs> the second plague, however, <coughs> is frogs. Now, it's true. Now, I don't want those frogs climbing all over my house, but I could, I guess, close the door and the windows. Maybe they come up through the sewers. Otherwise, like, it seems to me that there's a disparity here between the first plague, which is down, and the second plague, which is right there. 
So we're going to go through the Pesukim about Tzvardaya, and maybe look at the Rashi here and then, and see if we can find something, something to hang our hat on. Something that's in the plague of Tzvardaya, which is unique, which is special. I mean, this is how you do it. This is how you, what we call learning. What do we learn? What are we trying to do? We're trying to take the words of the Torah and find something noteworthy about them that we didn't think about, that we weren't sure about. We all know down Swadeyakinim, I wrote them because we all attend the Seder. And those ten makot are prominently displayed in the Seder. And is there anybody who would give up dunking their thinking in the wine and then putting it on the plate? Very often people have special plates. Makot plates. plates uh, because you wouldn't want to um, mix them up with, uh, I guess, with the with the chocolate covered caramelized uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, look at what it says. Yeah, I don't know if I take my glasses off because I can't see, but that's just between my old age. So it says, by Yom Hashem El Moshe Paul Parot Ramarta Ilah Moshe should go to Paro and, and he has this message. The message to Paro is Shalach et Amivi Aduni. Now we understand <coughs> that there's a major crisis here. Paro himself, he's not of our religion. He doesn't believe in God. But he believes in himself. He was a God, as Chazal pointed out. And when you say to God, God A, Shalach uh, send my people out of the tribe, and they will serve me, well, then, um, then, I mean, how can you say yes? I mean, it's like not kind of, it's not like saying give them a day off. Because of that, Pharaoh agreed. Right, I agree with Chazal say that when Moshe Rabbein saw that the Nei Yisrael were uh, um, in dire straits, he went to Paro. Paro then didn't know that Moshe Rabbein was Jewish. He thought that Moshe Rabbein grew up in his household, that he was he was of his family. Right? Yes. So Moshe Rabbein said to Paro, Moshe Rabbein said to Paro, "Listen, Paro." You're not going to be able, these slaves are not going to be able to make it. If you keep working them seven days a week, they're going to collapse and they'll die and then you won't have any slaves. And therefore, Moshe Rebbe said to Paro, you've got to give them Shabbat off. And Paro did. And Paro did. So when Moshe Rebbe came to Paro and said, give me a day off, so that did not create a theological conflict. He didn't say Shabbat, is that a day? Give him Saturday off because they like, uh, they like that day. So Paro agreed. But here, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu Shalachet says Shalachet Amibi Abduni, that's something else entirely. Then you want Paro to agree that the service of God by B'nai Yisrael, a different God, is something viable. Something real. So Paro certainly could not agree to that. And he didn't. He never did agree to that, as we as you will see in the 
this week's parasha and next week's parasha. He did not agree to that. The in ma'inata l'shaleach im adam ma'inata l'shaleach inei anochi nokesh kol bulchav mitzvadei. And so Moshe Rabbeinu says to to Paro, if you ma'in ma'in, what's the word ma'in means? Ma'in. If you refuse, what? Which word? What? Refuse. Okay, refuse. That's good. If you ma'ain, if you ma'ain the shalech, hineh nochi nogeif ekol kurcha v'kolu v'tzvardein. The word nogeif is like the Hebrew word ma'geifpa, which is a plague, which is itself something that sounds negative. Right? It's not just that there will be tzvardein, but it'll be bad tzvardein. There are good tzvardein, but bad tzvardein. These are going to be bad words. So now it says, "V'sharatza yorz v'adim v'alu uvau v'veitecha v'chadam mishkavecha v'amitatcha v'veit avadecha v'v'amecha v'tamurecha v'v'misharotecha." Okay, sounds bad to me. I mean, a lot of frogs, a lot of frogs. As you all know, it says in this pasuk. Well, anyway, so the next pasuk, uvacha uvamcha v'chol avadecha yalu atzvar deim. Okay, so that's what Moshe Rabbeinu tells Paro. He says, "Listen, Paro, let's not talk about theology. Let's talk about frogs. If you don't let the Israel go, frogs, and those frogs are going to be into everything, and it's going to be really awful." Next parak. So Moshe, God tells Moshe to tell Aaron. I mean, this exact, to try to figure out exactly what the relationship between Moshe and Aaron in Yitzhak Mitzrayim is, is, I mean, is something noteworthy, something that you should look into. In other words, what, what uh, Moshe, Moshe and Aaron waved, waved the, the, the staff around, for example, I mean, why couldn't Moshe do that himself? Why did Moshe do everything himself? Even if Moshe was a cloth then, it wasn't so easy to understand him. So what did he need Aaron for? Moshe Paro didn't, didn't listen to anything they said. There's something, you know, the whole the role of Aaron in Yitzhak Mitzrayim is something that should be looked into. Right? We're not doing it now, but, you know, it's something worth doing, without a doubt. But Yom HaShem El... Moshe Mola Aaron take Yadcha Vimatecha and Aaron Vala Yoriva Damiva Aladas Vadiva Vishai. You Aaron do it. But so fast, but yet Aaron Yedo, and they made it to Aaron Vadalas Vadaya. But the Chatzah Aaron Vishai, of course, all the noticers, you know, the ones who have been looking at these Psukim for the last 2,000 years. So they all said, What do you mean, Vadaya? Tzvardeya is singular. And everybody was promised a lot of Tzvardeya. So why are they all called Tzvardeya all of a sudden? So Rashi said, look at the Rashi. <coughs> the right-hand column, like two-thirds of the way down. See Pasuk Ben, Patala Tzvardeya? If you don't see it, you're not going to be able to read along with me. 
So if you don't see it vintage, you don't see it. And look the next year. next year. But now it's Vardaya, it's Vardaya, Achat, Aitava, Yumakin, Otak. What do you say about this? They start out with one Svardaya, and they would beat that Svardaya. He, Matezet, Nechilim, Nechilim, Vizel, Midrasho. So what happened? Huh? They would multiply as you hit them? Yeah. Are you, and what? what? They would hit them and they would multiply. No? Oh. But they would, like, 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 uh, sell. I mean, you're telling me what Rashi says. Isn't that what he says? Yeah, that's what he says. But okay. it's not what I'm interested in. Okay. <laughs> what I want to know is what you say about why it should be that way. I want to know how Rashi got that from that. So I did. It's a singular one. Well, I know, but how does he, just the fact oh, that... Oh, Rashi that gets everything from Chazal. Okay. Everything. There's no uh, Rashi doesn't make it. Hardly, let's say, ninety-five percent of Rashi comes from Chazal. The question that you have to ask Rashi about Rashi is: since Rashi was committed to Pshat, another hard word. Since Rashi was committed to Pshat, how come he quotes something that seems to be so unpshati? Right? That's a question. But before we get to that question, can you tell me something about the Nedrish? Like, what does it mean? As the frogs multiply, your frustration multiplies. So you so you do it again. So you hit more of them, and the more you hit, the more you get frustrated. Wait, the more what what was the promise that Moshe and Aaron brought to Mitzrayim about frogs? That there'd be no needs of them. That was the promise. Okay, so now we have another story. That the way to look at the story, I think, is this: there was this frog, right, Kermit. Was he a frog? So Kermit, if no one had done anything, then what would have happened to the Maka in Mitzrayim? If they would have been saved. That emailed everybody, you see a frog? Just let him go. Don't bother him. So now, what does the Medrash change? So, so what is the Medrash saying somehow? So now, what's the next question you have to ask? Why did the Mitzvahs bring it on themselves? Okay, that's it. Yeah, you can say, why? Why? Or why is this frog story distinguished from other stories? Other Matot. Matot where where they didn't bring it on themselves, they didn't do anything. They just would have sat there and it happened. Yes. Well, maybe this was the turning point. Speak louder. I can't see and I can't hear. <laughs> that fine blood happened and that maybe should have been a warning for them that this isn't just about power, this is about all of you. And now here's your chance, maybe, as, the, you know, uh, you could have. Like they could have gathered together and said this is a problem in our midst and we also take responsibility. But they clearly in the second Where's that place for people say I inspired a <laughs> walking down pathers and uh, no one did anything. Well somebody did do something. But I, I just don't don't get it exactly. I understand I think I understand what you're saying, but I don't really get how this fits into the story. But I would like to read one more line in Russian. <coughs> Rashi says, uh, Zehu Medrasha. 
Zel medrashah. Medrashah. When Rashi says Zel medrashah, he means it's not pshat. Because what is pshat? So what is pshat? He says right away. He says, you want to know what the shot of the Pasuk is, but I'll tell you. Sherutz Aksvarda in Shehi Lushon Yechidut. Sherutz Tzvarda in. When you talk about Tzvarda in and the word Sherutz, what does the word Sherutz mean? To multiply. Like little, like little creepy, crawly things. Like, you know, you, there was one, now there's a hundred and a that's Shirutz Hatzvazeim. So he says, whatever the, the, the Torah would refer to Shirutz Hatzvazeim, Karei Mishon Yechidu. So you know that in Hebrew, you know that in Hebrew, uh, uh, a collective is such a thing. Well, most languages have such a thing. Like when you say, man, or woman, you don't necessarily mean a man or a woman, but you can mean like the subtotal of all men or all women, right? So Rashi says, Rashi says that the word svardeya in Hebrew is used as a singular and as a plural. And therefore, in Pshat, at the level of Pshat, you don't get too nervous about this. Nevertheless, Rashi says, I have to know this. I have to tell you. I have to tell you what it is that uh, that was really happening. Right? Why well, do I have to tell you? Because after all, the word Svardeya is mentioned three times in this parasha previously. Always as in. Only here is it mentioned as Svardeya. So Rajin says, in spite of the fact that on the level of Shat, it's like Nishka Perla. You know, we could all say, oh, it could happen. But Raji says, well, if this happened, I'd like to know why it happened. Because that's how the Torah is. The Torah is very precise. The Torah is not just flappy around the edges. And therefore, since the Torah is very precise, it's reasonable for me to ask this question. Okay? Let's go on. Uh, you have a question on the question? A question on the answer? A question on the proposal? Nothing? Hmm. Okay, so now we're up to Pasuk. That's Pasuk Gimel, I think, right? We have Sukkay, the Khartoum Bim, the Latayem, the Yalu, that's why they're in. I'll erit So here we have another subtext. What is uh, What are we talking about? Who are the Khartoum Bim? Who are the Khartoum Bim? The wizards. Wizards, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Uh, well, these are the people who are connected to God. These are people connected to God, and because they're connected to God, and not our God, but they're connected to Pharaoh's God. And <coughs> The way they prove that connection is by doing things that seem to be miraculous. Seem to be miraculous. So, Svardaya was a miracle that Moshe Rabbeinu brought down upon, upon the Egyptians. But the Egyptians saw it differently. They said, well, it's a miracle, but you know, our guys can listen to that miracle. And therefore, why should we listen? 
So that's what the Pasuk says. The Pasuk says, they did the same thing. So now the whole country is full of frogs. Our frogs and their frogs and the other frogs, right? But it's not the same thing, because they said Sparta in here, and we said Sparta. So something different. That's good. But now you just add one sentence. Any sentence you want. Well, maybe even better. Anything you want. No, about frogs. About frogs? I'm not a sloppy person. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, how do you know, how would you know, really, that they were successful in doing that? Why would they bring the frogs? Uh-huh. Why would the mystery maker bring the frogs? If they already had enough frogs. They didn't get rid of the frogs. But they didn't do it the same way. The way that Hashem made the miracle is that you had to hit a frog and it would split. No, he told you. So you're saying you're willing to do the same thing? I didn't say that. <clears throat> Didn't he tell Aaron to hit with the matzah? Not to hit yadecha, and the charchemim also not to. So it's the same language is used in both. And therefore, <coughs> it's similar. It seems like a similar way of bringing it up. Certainly, it's probably possible for an Egyptian to think it's similar, and, to, and therefore to deny the the proposition that if you don't let us go and serve our God, then we will. Then we will do frogs. So it's like you say, well, do frogs. Everybody can do frogs. You know, it's, it's true they're an annoyance, but that doesn't mean that you know that you can't live with it. We can't overcome. Can I ask you something? Can I ask you something? Hashem knows everything. You can even ask me something without asking me. Hashem is Hashem. Hashem knows what the Egyptian lids can do. Why would he? do something. The whole point is to do something that they can't do, to prove that Hashem is Hashem. So, if, if he's asking Moshe to show them his might, to show him his authority, and that they can replicate it, why, why isn't Moshe being asked to do something that is beyond what the Mitzvahim can do? I'm frustrated because if they can do it, then what's the big deal? Like, Hashem should be performing a play, a miracle, a play that it's beyond their capability. So you represent the state of Israel, right? What would you say? What do you say? If uh, if Israelis got together on the anniversary of the Six Day War and declared that they had to give thanks to God. For the results of that six day war, which came as you Davish and Rome and Kotel. I didn't finish. And then, and then some other wise university professors got together and they said, well, every war somebody wins and somebody loses. And it's no big deal, it's just that the Israelis were better prepared to win. So what do you think? Do you think the one cancels out the other? That, you know, somebody's going to win this argument about Israel? No, I'm just saying that the whole point of Moshe doing this was to prove Hashem's Hashemness. No, no, and no. I, I don't know. You, I don't know. I don't know. At the end of the day, you understand that the Egyptians were not, um, did not learn the lesson. They, even after B'nai Yisrael left Mitzrayim, right, Pyro chased after them with chariots, he, and, and it was only but they were all dead that they gave in. 
Power does not give in. People don't give up on their beliefs so easily. So the question, of course, is so why were they doing it? Why was ETF described such a long and involved process? Why was it something that took ten weeks of, of uh, miracles? And maybe, the, maybe that you have to look at it from the point of view of B'nai Israel and to try to understand what B'nai Israel was supposed to learn. In other words, faith is not something that can be proven like one faith against another. Faith is something that lives in you if you are, are, are willing to carry it forth. I mean, that's what faith is. It's not about something that is necessarily right by some kind of uh, algebra. Right? Algebra doesn't help you. And so it's perfectly reasonable for people to have one kind of faith and another kind of faith. And it's perfectly reasonable for me to be absolutely certain that my kind of faith is, is right. It's the faith that I should have. To me, that's perfectly reasonable. So it could be, it could be that the lesson of Yitzhak Yitzhak was about the Jewish people and not about the Egyptians. The expectations about the Egyptians were very low. I mean, they had their position. You know, that the, the Torah says you should not return, you shouldn't allow the Jews to return to Egypt. Why not? Why shouldn't, you, why shouldn't Jews go back to Egypt? I'm not talking about today and uh, the last 500 years. And, uh, but the Torah says, don't let the Jews go back to Egypt. And Rashid explains that Egypt is a country that gets water from the Nile. Remember the Nile? That's a big river. And it goes up and down Egypt. And the farmers in Egypt get water, which gives them sustenance from the Nile. And because they get the water from the Nile, because they get the water, they don't have to daven. What's the first case of davening in the Torah? Torah. The first okay. case. Okay. First case. Okay. Before. Adam Arishon. Mm-hmm. When? When does it say that Adam Arishon Davin? It says in the Pasuk, I don't have it here. You know the Pasuk? Adam Ayin, Lavodet Adam Before God was, man was created, there was nobody to work the land. What's the question? In the Gan Eden. Nobody worked the land in the Gan Eden. That's what Gan Eden is. You don't do anything. What do you mean, Adam So Rashi says, Adam means that man's job was to David. And if you David, there would be rain. So that means that for the last 10 years, if you follow the news in Israel, more interesting even than the snow is the fact that the Kinneret is going up about three centimeters a day. Now for years, Israeli has been, Israel has been crying about the Kinneret. Now the Kinneret gets its water in the winter from the rain and the snow. So that's what Adam Ayin that man's job in creation is to daven. That doesn't mean it's his only job. 
I don't want to be too chayyeli here. That you shouldn't do anything else. But we're saying that davening <coughs> is a necessary component of the human persona. That's what we are. We are also daveners. We're also daveners. And so, how do we get to Adam Arisha? Why you should go back to Egypt. So you see why you shouldn't go back to Egypt? Because in Egypt you didn't have to daven. You didn't have to daven because the water was always there. And that's why Chazal say that Paro, the king of Egypt, was also a, a god. And he displayed his godliness at the Nile. That's so where he went to, to be the king of, uh, of Egypt. So, so the Torah says, don't go there. Don't go to a place in the world where you don't have to daven. And Rashi helped us to say it's not just a place in the world, but it also contradicts creation. Creation was the creation of those who have to daven. If there are people in the world who don't have to daven, then it's a brach. Right? They, also, they disappear, right? You know, but that's I don't want to get involved in that. How, so do, you, how do you understand davening from Adam Ayin Lavod Adama? From Avodah, Avodah is davening. Okay. Avodah Hashem is also davening. Okay. So Adam Ayin, man, had not yet been created, and there was nobody to daven, and therefore the grass didn't grow yet, and the trees didn't bloom. So when man was created. He started davening. That's what he did. That was his job. He didn't do anything else, <coughs> according to this line of this line of reasoning. Um, I just want to read another passage. Since we talked about davening, since we talked about davening, um, yeah, if you then there's a conversation with with Paro and uh, oh, the play. With Paro and Moshe Rabbeinu stop this and do this, and then we get to Pasuk Shet. You see Pasuk Shet? Vayitzay Moshe Aaron. you see that? Meyim Paro. Vayitzak Moshe El Hashem Al-Dvar Tzvar De'in Asher Sam Leparo. It says Vayitzak. Vayitzay Vayitzak. Those are the verbs. Verbs are very important in Hebrew. So you have to always like take note of that. Vayitzay, he went out. Vayitzak. And then he was Vayitzak. What? He prayed. Right, that's, it's a, it's a, a synonym for prayer. Uh, it's not exactly a synonym. I mean, it could be that there's no such thing as a synonym. Even though I remember that in elementary school they told me that there is. <coughs> Maybe a little bit of a stronger word. Than yeah, there could be a real distinction. Uh, there's no reason to think that two words were born meaning the same thing. That that defies belief. But maybe not. Maybe like some people said in the back side of the room, there is a back side of the room, so they said you know, different they reacted differently to what's going on. But uh, unlikely. So it says by Yitzhak that Moshe Rabbeinu went out, Moshe and Aaron. Right, you see already in the Pasuk there's a disparity. Who went out? Okay. Who? 
Moshe and Aaron. Who are Yitzhak? So, that's good. That's no good. That's certainly it's something we should think about. Or if we don't know about. So what does Rashi say? By saying Yitzhak, By Yitzhak, by Yitzhak. You see the Dibur of Adchil? Huh? That they prayed now that they should end tomorrow? No, but she had to meet it. So you have to Is it not far tomorrow? I'm sorry. That's what Paro said. No, it's okay. That's what Paro said. Then Rashi says. You see, by by Yom and the Machar, that's Rashi. But by Yom, she yichretu the Machar. Daven today, that tomorrow, that should come to an end. By Yitzay by Yitzak, miyad she yichretu she yichretu the Machar. But you can see from the Dibur Amatzil in Rashi, you see the Dibur Amatzil. What does it say? Pasuk Chet. What does it say? By Yitzay. What's the pshat in the Dibur Amat? The Pabashi Rebbe used to make a lot of. He noticed these things a lot. I don't know whether he says it about this pasuk, but he was very into it. But he'd say, what, what is Rashi saying? What are, what are you saying? Does it say that the pasuk by Yitzay Yitzak? No. no. What does it say? It says, by say Moshe Aaron. So it's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with that? If it was Moshe Aaron, it should be So what is Rashi telling us? It's, it's true they both went out, but they both went out differently. One went, one followed. Or one went to David. To Vayitzak, and one just went with it. Who went to Daven? Moshe Rabbein. Who went with them? Aaron. So that's what the Pasuk says. That's what the Pasuk says. So now, that's Vayitzay, Vayitzak. Okay. Now, if you look at the bottom, if you look at the bottom, there's another Pasuk from a different parasha. We're talking about Arov. You know the Maka Arov? That's what they're keeping. Arov. That's what they're keeping. Arov. What's Arov? Like a whole mess of wild animals. Like we were, we were, and the plane, obviously under the strong influence of the Haredi customers, we, there was this movie that they were showing, you know, a Discovery Channel movie <laughs> about lions killing other animals, which apparently is very Haredi. Yeah. So I said, you know, if you like killing, I guess you like Lions killing other little animals. I would have rather watched a gangster movie. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. 
So this is Arov, these wild animals. So Vayetzeh Moshe Viparov, Yetar El Hashem. Vayetar El Hashem. What does that word mean? Vayetar. What does that word mean? Petition. Who? Petition. Petition. Good? Petition. Petition. Oh, petition. What's petition mean? Uh, to plead. Request. Request. Well, yeah, plead request. is plead is formal request. Yeah. Ah, formal request. So it was up to now, Moshe Rabbeinu just stopped, and now he wrote God a note. <laughs> is that what you mean? I don't know. Look at Rashi. You see Rashi? Mm-hmm. Which means put in a lot of effort. Put a lot of effort, you know. In other words, as each makah came, it was harder for Moshe Rabbeinu to come up with good reasons to remove the makah and make it less uh, less uh, intense. So Rashi says that the word by the entire means it amates between us. Okay. Now I want you to know a medrash. If you turn the page, if I turn the page, this medrash, this is a medrash Varim Rabbah, the beginning of the page of Vayetchanah. But Hanan in, in, in Zarim is the last plea that Moshe Rabbeinu makes to God to allow him to go into Eretz Yisrael. And that plea is refused by God. And so the best Moshe Rabbeinu can get was to go up on the mountain and see Eretz Yisrael from afar. But he was not able to participate. He wasn't able to be part of. Of course, Chazal uh, don't understand or want to clarify what it was that Moshe Rabbeinu wanted so much. I mean, he came up till the the boundary, the Jordan River. He was in Arvot Moab, whatever that is, the Moabite, the so Moab. If you don't know what that means, don't ask me. He brought the people so close, right across the river was Jericho. Jericho. What was it that Moshe thought of? I mean, he knew he was 120 years old. He would die soon enough. So what was it that he wanted to do? So here in the Medrash, the Medrash says, Omar of Yochanan. You see the Medrash? Asarala Shonotni creates we love Elohim. There are ten synonyms, synonyms that are used to describe tefillah in the Torah, in the Tanakh. They have these are them: shavah, saaka, menaka, rina, pgiya, pitzur, kriya, nifu, pilu, betachlimim, shavah, saaka. What? What? Where, where did we say? No, we're, we're talking about. Oh, we said Sa'ak. 
What? Because Avada is also prayer. No, but it's not a verb. He prayed. It's it's saying that he there's a mitzvah on him to pray. Okay. That's different, apparently. So how many of the show notes are there? How many different words are there that describe prayer? Uh, uh, what about our words? The words tzaka, that's a that's a word of prayer, right? Tzaka. And what's the last word that we that we saw? Atira, correct? Mm-hmm. And what is what is it in the list? No, no. Not even in the list. Hmm. So let's finish by looking at the Svatamet. Svatamet, you see the bottom of this page? Let's look at the Svatamet. <coughs> Svatamet with the second Gary Red. Is there anybody here who's related to Gare? Who has a relative in Gare? No, I can say anything I want. <laughs> <laughs> the Gare Hasidim, the Gare Rebbeim are uh, distinguished by the fact that they were all great geniuses. In spite of the fact that the the Rebbe, the Gare Rebbe today, the three preceding Gare Rebbeis were brothers. The first gay Rebbe was Rabbi Yitzhak Meir. He's called the Chidushe Harim. His son died at a young age before he became Rebbe and his son had a son who, who was the Svatameh. It's important to know this because we will understand what the first line for the first line that he says. He says, Shamati Mipi Mori Uskeni Zah. Mori Uskeni, my grandfather, my teacher. Because his father died. And he really was brought up by his grandfather. His grandfather is the Shidushiari, Rabitzak Meyer. Their name was Morgenstern, but it became Alter. You know, like people changed their names in those days in order to avoid being drafted. If you were apparently in a, in the only son in a family, you wouldn't be drafted. So, uh, so as many people as they could made up names for their sons. You know, until they came from. <coughs> so anyway, that Shemati would be Murray Uskani's out. He says, "Ki kol al shemot shekatvu b'matzot va'yitzak mosheva yetar." That all of these words that are used in the makot to describe Moshe Rabbeinu's reaction, like the word va'yitzak and the word va'yetar, right? We all know what he's talking about. Va'yetar is the word that's used for arov, and va'yitzak is the word that's used for svardaya. And he says, he says, the Svadavad says, Uki, why is it that they use these different words? Ki alidei asara mashot, nitkinu asara lishonot shot tefillah. Because through these asara makot, somehow, the ten lishonot of tefillah came into existence. 
So we go back to the very first question that we might have asked or not asked. I think we asked it. We say, who are the who are the ten makot for? Could be. And one of the things that B'nai Yisrael were to learn from the Makot was one of the things that B'nai Yisrael was going to learn from the Makot was that in beseeching God there are different levels and different kinds of achievement. Right? And that's what the Fidushi, that's what the Svatamet said. B'nai Yisrael had to learn that. And why did B'nai Yisrael have to learn that? Because we know that B'nai Yisrael were in such bad shape that they all they could do was scream a wordless scream to God to save them. And even though the wordless scream is at the same time the lowest and the highest form of life, where is the wordless Scream, the highest form of tefillah. Now, when I tell you, you're going to be embarrassed because you all know the answer. Childbirth. Who? The childbirth. Oh. <laughs> 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 you're being like a lot of killing you. I'm begging you to make me go away, but it's the biggest mess in the world. <laughs> First of all, well, I don't know. Not having, not having ever tried it myself, but I'm not sure that pain is the most overwhelming part of childbirth anymore. But the answer is, of course, Tkiyat Shofar. Tkiyat Shofar is a wordless, uh, uh, almost senseless kind of prayer. But if it comes from the depths, you know, Shlomo Kabbalah would say, the deepest of the deep. If it comes from there, it's the greatest of all prayers. Because, you know, words are often limited. People always feel you want to say something, but you don't have what to say. You don't know how to say it. You don't know what words to use. You know, when the Jews came back from Persia, Some people feel their own inadequacy where they have to speak to God. I mean, imagine Mahabdin, you know, if you have to go speak to, uh, to a king. Well, did you say, hi, king? How are you doing? How's it going? What's new? I'm sure that it would be difficult for most people. Similarly, speaking to God was difficult for most people. So the Chachamim gave us a text. They didn't say... Don't have it on your own. They didn't say, don't beseech God for things that you feel that you should be beseeching for. They just said, you have to do the mitzvah. Yeshvah Esra. Yeshvah Esra, because that's always going to be a tefillah. It's not, a, it's not an issue. 
It's not an issue, so that tefillah, according to the Svatimet, has levels. A lower level is called by the because it doesn't have so much contact. And as you know, you can see sometimes people crying and wailing, and you know, and they're not saying anything. They don't express themselves in that way. And by Yatar, at least according to Rashi, and I think according to the Svatan, that means there's clear, it's clearly defined. I know what I'm asking for. I know what it is that I'm presenting. Right? So that, that this problem of Tvilah, this problem of Tvilah, which is derived from our study of the frauds, and led us to a place where we might not have expected to be at this moment, right? This idea, this idea that there is, uh, that there are levels of Tvilah. And they have to work on it. You have to work on moving up that ladder somehow. All of that is part of what we learned from the Torahs, what we saw in the Svatimet, what we saw in the Meshachavu, and a little bit Rashi helped us out on a couple of psukim. Okay, questions. It would have been wiser and more impressive if the Chartumim had made the frogs disappear instead of making more. I mean, it's hard, hard to know. It's hard to see. You see, uh, you're looking at this one. <coughs> the Khartoumim then were not able after that to duplicate the uh, the plague. And yet, Paro was convinced that he shouldn't let the Israel out of the shrine. So, how do you explain that? Well, and there is no logic to that. There is no no logic. It was his pride. wasn't necessarily. Well, I, I don't know. Why, why. I, don't well, I say there's no logic after. I always thought there was logic to it. In other words, if you have two men who are able to do X, then it's easy enough to think that there are other Khartoumim someplace in the world who could do X plus something. So it doesn't matter anymore what Moshe Rabbeinu brings down upon the Egyptians. It just hurts. But it, it does not affect their theological position, which is that their God, or some other God, is just as strong as Moshe Rabbeinu's God, which was the issue. The issue was not whether Moshe Rabbeinu could wreak havoc with the, with the Egyptian uh, countryside. The question was, is Moshe Rabbeinu representing the truth and on that question, it was enough for the for the Khartoumim. I mean the question is really the opposite. Why wasn't it enough for the Khartoumim to turn the rod into a snake? Which they did when they first met up with Moshe and Aaron. Why do they have to do this with the Tsvardim? Well what difference does it make? But okay. It's a good question. Thank you, Bashan. What's Hashem using Paul? To help enable, like Hashem purposely wanted Paro to say no, so that it could help enable Bnei Israel to get close to Hashem. I guess in some in some way, yes. But I think what really, uh, all right. I mean, yes, in some way, it's a different discussion. Yes. I'm 
still I didn't follow, maybe I didn't catch it, but by by Ya'atir, it's still not in the ten Lashonot of Tefillah. It's still not? In the ten Lashonot of Tefillah, in that message. Are you saying that Tefillah is a lower level? No, no, I, I, I think you are right. You are right, but the, the Svatamet, who knew this Medrash, doesn't think, they, either they left it out for some reason, or, um, or but certainly belongs there. <coughs> are you saying, like, I, I, uh, you said that Kiyosha Shofar is the highest level of Tefillah. And, and I it think could be. It could be. Like, I, I guess I was surprised to hear that because that's, Kiyosha Shofar is more of a global, to me, it's more praying for Ami Israel, it's more of a global Tefillah. I don't know, maybe I'm, I, I'm probably wrong. But when you say, you know, words can't express, and you're dominating, and you're really feeling that, isn't that a very high level? And because you shouldn't have a specific bakashot for Hashem. Right. Except if... So that's Kiyat It's the prayer that has no words. Right, but it doesn't have from, you're not active in doing Kiyat Shofar. But you feel it. It's like a inside you. You receive it, but you're not... No, you do the mixture. Whatever the mitzvah is, you're doing it. You're doing the mitzvah. So the person who loves the shofar is doing it. He's uh, helping you out technically. He's a facilitator. Yeah, he's not doing it. So that means that when you're talking about tefillah, when you say different levels of achievement, the highest level of achievement is just avodah Hashem without any personal bakashah. That's what you're saying? I, I'm just trying to follow the tefillah discussion. I didn't say that. <laughs> but it may be right. No, I'm not, I'm not saying it's right. wrong. I, was, I, I, think, I think tefillah is usually seen as uh, something where you get some benefit or you try to get a benefit. But there's another way of understanding tefillah, and that is that the benefit of tefillah is being able to feel that you're standing before God. And that may be sufficient. Besides which, there's also the bakasha aspect of it. I didn't say that. I don't say that there isn't. In other words, the tefillah that we know about is the tefillah, which is a bakasha, asking God for something. But tefillah also imagines that we are being listened to, and that God's presence is obvious. So that itself is a remarkable thing. Even if you have nothing to ask for, and that's what I think Rosh Hashanah, the Tkiyat Shofar, is that. Tkiyat Shofar is not about what I ask for. Even though the idea that Rosh Hashanah, we ask for mercy and forgiveness and all of that. But that's not really what Tkiyat Shofar is. Tkiyat Shofar says, we are the people who believe that God hears us and we hear God. That was that was Avinu. That's how Avinu was created. Avinu was created with a mitzvah. God said to Avinu, "Didn't talk about theology. He didn't talk about Socrates. He didn't talk about that." So he said a mitzvah. Let's just go to Eretz 
Okay. Thank you. 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 Thank you.